Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have author Jeff Carreria. And Jeff and I have this amazing conversation in the intersection between quantum physics and spirituality. How quantum physics is starting to catch up to what the yogis and the mystics and the ancients were talking about thousands and thousands of years ago. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Jeff Carrera. How are you doing, Jeff? Very good. Nice to see you, Alex. A pleasure to be a pleasure, man. Friend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about one of our favorite subjects of the audience that, that we, I love talking about is quantum physics and its connection to spirituality and it's kind of going into that deep, deep rabbit hole. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that is ever changing. By the way, it's a, it's a rabbit hole that constantly is changing. Um, unlike a lot of ancient wisdom, that kind of just stays ancient and wiz and wise. Quantum physics is still trying to figure things out and connecting it to spirituality is, is always interesting. So, my first question is: What caused you? What sparked your interest in doing research in regards to the connection between quantum physics and spirituality? Well, it, this is a long-standing interest of mine in the sense that um, when I was very young, uh, I was raised Catholic, and my first interest was in being a priest. Uh, you and me both, brother. Okay, there you go. Priest, priest, a priest came in in my first grade class, and I went home, and I go, Mom, I'm going to be a priest. And my mom's like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, because... I, I was very young and I told my grandfather I wanted to be a priest and he said, great idea, good racket. You see that Lincoln they drive? And I just thought, okay, I don't want to be a priest. <laughs> that, was, that was the end of that desire. Um, and I went through a progress, you know, I went through the rest of my childhood becoming more and more disillusioned with religion. And so in my uh, in high school, I declared myself an atheist, and I studied physics as an undergraduate because I felt if I understood physics, since we lived in a physical universe, I would understand everything there was to know. Mm -hmm. um, and as it turned out, I came to a place where I realized that there's 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 basically an edge to physics in which scientists are making it up. And uh, <laughs> I, I read I read Thomas Kuhn's book, uh, The Structures of Scientific Revolutions, which mm -hmm. basically talks about how we think the history of science is the history of increasing knowledge about reality. 
when in fact it's it's a very interesting history in which worldviews emerge and they exist for a while and then they collapse and then a completely new worldview emerges and there's very little that connects one to the next uh, mm -hmm. it's not really a progression of knowledge about reality it's really a, a shifting philosophy about what is real uh, and that's when i started getting into psychology and then meditation philosophy spiritual philosophy and and so i've always been in some ways, uh, wanting to rectify my scientific leanings with my spiritual passions. Yeah, it's always very interesting because science and scientists a lot of times <clears throat> speak with such authority that they know everything, but there, it goes to a, an edge. All science goes to an edge when you start getting going bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where like, well, the Big Bang, great. What was before the Big Bang? What caused the Big Bang? Uh, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> we, we can't go there. Or gravity. Quantify gravity for me. And they're like, well, we know how it works, but why does it work? Uh, you know, like these these basic ideas, like it, it, they only could go so far, but yet the ego tells the it's like a very egotistic way of looking i'm like i know this for a fact well i mean it's constantly changing and we're kind of constantly growing i mean there was a time there the whole galileo effect that they wouldn't even look through the telescope <laughs> they right. just wouldn't even look like look man we can't go down there but we'll buy them for the for the war but we can't look through them <laughs> <laughs> Got it. No, definitely. And, you know, I went down a big rabbit hole in terms of the Big Bang Theory at one point. Um, and, you know, essentially, it's a pretty bad theory, um, meaning it doesn't explain much and it requires a lot of mathematical fudging to make it work. You know, every time we figure out that the universe is bigger than we thought it was or has more matter in it than we thought it was, we need to we need to explain. We need to we need to add an element that helps make the, the mathematical trajectory of the Big Bang work out. Um, so it's not a great theory. Um, it just happens to be really the only one we have. But in effect, it's not it's not, in my opinion, really significantly more explanatory than saying God invented the universe or, you know, God started the universe. I mean, it's just, it's just, you replace God with a big bang and nobody knows what that is because before the big bang, there was no time and there was no space. So how does a, how does an explosion happen in no time and no space? You know, nobody really knows. So it's just as mysterious as saying God, whatever that is, invented you know created the universe the and the thing is that with the big bang you can actually see there is things that they can study now which is remnants of the big bang with telescopes and things so they can see what happened why it happened is right. the question how it happened is the question but they'd like something happened and we can prove that something happened and we can prove you know it's like kind of like i know this cake tastes well it tastes good I love this cake. It's delicious. And I know there was eggs and this or that, but who created the materials to make the eggs? 
yes. to make the, you just keep going down and down. You're just like, I, I don't know. <laughs> and, and the further down that rabbit hole you go, the more you realize that, you know, as Thomas Kuhn wrote about in the structures of scientific revolutions, it's very questionable that we know anything at all. Um, <laughs> You know, not not. Of course, we do know things, but we know things in relationship to a background of understanding, and mm -hmm. we don't know. So th there's a there's a great word, and I, I and I always mis mispronounce it, but I think it's called uh, verisimilitude, something like that. Anyway, it basically means the truth, the 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 truthiness of a statement, and the idea is, if we don't know what reality is. How do we know which theory is closer to it than any other theory? You know, if if you don't know where you're going, how do you know if you're getting any closer? What 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 allows you to say this is true versus that is true if you don't know what's underneath it all? It's like um, uh, you know the the um, Kuhn has some fantastic examples of scientific theories that were. They, they were true in the time that they were true until they, they you know, couldn't prove something or something else was discovered. And then suddenly it wasn't true anymore. Uh, and, and then everything changed and everybody changed how they're thinking about it. Gravity was a force. And then gravity became the effect of the, the bending of space time. Uh, mm -hmm. But for, for a long time, it was a force, and it looked like a force, and everybody thought it was a force, and people would speak about it as if it was a force with complete certainty mm -hmm. until it wasn't anymore. And it took decades to accept that because people thought Einstein was off his rocker and didn't really make sense. Um, so, you know, what I like to say is literally every single scientific theory that has ever been held as rock solid true has been proven false, except the ones we believe are rock solid true today. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. What's the chances that 500 years from now, those are all gonna stand up? I mean, I hope that the, the earth does go around the sun. So that is a rock solid truth. I mean, we, I hope. Right. I hope. Now we figured that out a few hundred years ago, but yeah. <laughs> right. And it took how many how many decades, if not hundreds of years, for it to be accepted exactly. uh, as, as well. So yeah, there are some scientific truths that we do hold to understand today. But the reality of those truths are being questioned now by quantum physics. Absolutely. Which, which it is now throwing things. Up, it's an upending materialism, which is what all science is based on. Is if I'm, if I'm I'm not wrong, it's based on materialism that we live in a materialistic world and everything is solid and this and that. But now we discover that everything isn't solid, and everything right. is energy. And if you keep going down, there's actually no space between the, the electrons and the protons inside. So if there's no space, then what's holding it together? And then the concept of consciousness comes up and the concept of thought. And there's just it just opens up, as Einstein called it, quantum physics is the spooky. It's spooky, right? Something along those lines. Yeah, spooky, spooky. spooky science. Yeah, spooky science. I don't want to talk about that. They And they, they ignore it. And isn't it true that when even when, twin, and I think it's the early 1900s, if I'm not mistaken, when quantum physics started to really 
come up on its own, it's basically just been almost shunned for over a hundred years to the point mm -hmm. where there hasn't been a lot of major advances in quantum physics. Am I wrong? Quantum physics. I mean, it's, I think it's still explored as far as I know, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, look, when I was a, an undergraduate, the big thing was like super string theory. Sure. Uh, right. And that was the big thing. And that's what people were getting into. Um, and that's been, that's more or less gone by the wayside, you know, I mean, I don't know that that means it's untrue, but it, I, I've once heard it described as the theory that explains everything, mm -hmm. right? But it explains, it's essentially saying that a theory that explains everything explains nothing. Uh, because no matter what, you can always, you know, you can always massage that theory to explain it. Uh, which means a theory needs to have some things it doesn't explain in order to be, uh, you know, sort of rock solid. So <laughs> string theory went went by the wayside. There's still some proponents of it, uh, but I don't sure. think it's not like a major deal. Well, let me ask you this. There's a concept in quantum physics that is fascinating to me, and it really, really throws materialism completely out the window, which is quantum entanglement. Mm -hmm. Can you discuss quantum entanglement and how it relates to spirituality? Sure. Well, you know, quantum entanglement um, is, you know, and I'm not a physicist, but, you know, my understanding of quantum entanglement essentially means that if you have two particles that, and then you separate them, no matter how far you separate them, they're connected, which means if one has a spin in one direction, the other one will have a spin in the other direction. And if you change the spin of this one, this one will change. So I like to say that's like if you were in a gymnasium and you had a basketball, uh, you had two basketballs that were touching and then you walked, two people took them to opposite sides of the gym, you put them on the ground and you pick this one up and bounced it and that one bounced, mm -hmm. you know? And I, and, and I use this in the book, I think, but, uh, what I like to say is if that happened in a gym, if we had two basketballs on opposite sides of the gym and we bounced this one and that one bounced at the same exact time, we'd be freaking out. Mm -hmm. We'd be saying, oh, my God, this changes everything. <laughs> you know, that we, need to, we need to just massively step back and rethink everything about, that we've ever thought about anything. But this has been happening at the quantum level for 100 years. And it's not really causing, you know, I think among scientists, it causes a stir and among, you know, some people who are interested. But I think the the world of quantum physics is so far removed from the everyday experience of reality that it just doesn't figure as prominent. Where, as I said, if if two basketballs were moving on opposite side of the gym, you know, everybody in that gym would be freaking out and probably you know, radically starting to rethink their worldview. Right. And it, it, and so how does that play into the concept of spirituality in the sense that spirituality, everything, and that word is so loaded and has so much, such a wide, you know, brush to paint this conversation in, but spirituality as the afterlife, multiple realms, uh, different realities, um, the power of thought, consciousness, the observer, all of these things. 
it kind of shows us a kind of a small little window into that, this quantum entanglement, because it's showing us that we are connected at a much deeper level than we truly understand. Because right. you and I are separated by arguably hundreds, if not thousands of miles uh, if at this point where you are in the world and where I am in the world right now. But yet we are connected at a different level that you and I understand on a spiritual sense. Does an entanglement kind of give you a window into that? Sure. You know, what, what entanglement shows is that what we have always thought and what our common sense tells us are the limits of time and space aren't the limits of time and space. That, that we're not limited by time and space in the way that we thought we were. It just like it would be just like if I, I don't know, turned my light switch on over here and and, and your room went dark. You right. know, they would be like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> that shouldn't happen. So so Thomas Kuhn in his book said that um, there's three ways that paradigm shift. One is that uh, we run into a problem that we just cannot solve for love and money, no matter what, right? And eventually we have to give up on, on our fundamental assumptions. The second is uh, someone has some kind of mystical, almost mystical re realization, like Einstein did about relativity. You know, there wasn't really any experiment. He hadn't really seen anything. He just thought about it. Um, and the third one is when things that shouldn't be possible happen. And, and so you see something impossible, you think, okay, then it, clearly it's possible. <laughs> so if two uh, particles on opposite sides of the galaxy can show that kind of entangled connection, that shouldn't be possible because it should take some finite amount, even if they are somehow communicating, it should take some amount of time to get there and it's not. Uh, right. You know, so the, the two big, the two very popular uh, quantum physics examples, one is quantum entanglement, the other is the, the photoelectric effect, which essentially says, um, if you have two slits and you shine light through it, as long as you have two slits open, <clears throat> then you'll get uh, a wave field on the other side because as the light goes through it, it bends and they interfere with the, the light from this slit and this slit interfere and it creates a pattern. If you close one, of course, you don't get that pattern anymore, mm -hmm. right? Because all the light's going through one side. It's not interacting with any other light. It just hits the wall. So, uh, okay, that's normal. So but then what they do is they, they, they just emit one little photon of light at a time, which means that photon could only be going through one slit. It's like a bullet. Mm -hmm. And there's no other photons happening. Now, when you have two slits and you shine just one photon through and, and you do one and another and another and another and another and another through the same slit, you end up with this pattern. That should be happening because the light is going through both slits at once and interfering, but it's happening even though all the light's going through one slit, right? And mm -hmm. if you close the other slit, then you don't get the pattern, right? So mm -hmm. you get the, you only get the pattern uh, when both lists are open, but then it gets even weirder 
because if you put a detector on one slit and then you definitively know that the electron went through that slit, it doesn't make the pattern anymore. It's like it knows you know, right? As long as there's some reasonable doubt, it'll make the pattern. But as soon as you're certain uh, of, of which slit, it, that it only went through one slit, it, it only reveals itself as having gone through one slit. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, so that's really weird. Yes, it is. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, it's yeah. fascinating. It's fascinating because well, that opens up the whole idea of consciousness and the observer, right. which is been debated and thought about for millennia. Of what is consciousness? Who is watching? In, inside of our brain, there's a voice. There's a voice t- talking to us constantly, the ego. We call it the ego. But yet there's something observing that. Yes. What is that? Who is that? Is that the soul? Is that the higher self? Is that what is that? So it's, again, the observer watching determines a lot of what's happening. And that's what this this experiment really is saying is that if you're observing it, you're influencing it with your observation. Right. Uh, but if you're not, it does its own thing. That's right. that's funky, man. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, this this is this should be big news. <laughs> this should be front page news, but we need to know how the Kardashians are doing. Um <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. and with the and going back real quick to entanglement with there should be no you know, between two two particles and two different sides of the universe, there should be some sort of time delay, even the right. speed of light or something between that communication. But for my uh, my rudimentary uh, research in just talking to near death experiencers, they talk about instant communication, instantly being at another place with their right. thought, instantly being somewhere else that they can communicate telepathically, but it almost is instant in what they know. And an immense amount of a download of of all universal knowledge, like instantly when they're on the other side, not all, but some get that and they just go, oh, that's what quantum physics is, (laughs) kind of thing. They don't bring it back often, um, but this instantaneous information, and then you start, start getting into the Akashic Records and then that whole, like, how could you even process everything that's ever happened anywhere in the universe and then have complete total access to it instantly when you access it? Like, it's beyond the comprehension of our time and space because you, there's a hard drive that needs to go get the information that brings it back or or a librarian that goes on a stair, <laughs> pulls out a book, brings it down. So this is what... These, these, these are again. I keep using the word windows because it seems to be windows into what reality truly is, or what is beyond this time and space reality. But it's starting to kind of creep into our physical space. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I when I wrote the book, uh, the spiritual implications of quantum physics. Mm-hmm. The main thing. You know, because I'm also not the kind of person, I, I don't feel like we can draw too many conclusions. 
mm-hmm. based on quantum physics. It's it's a very new science. It's very very hard to observe. You know, it the the, the experimental results. This is what's amazing about it. you know some of these things like the photoelectric effect. I mean, that was discovered over a hundred years ago. Kids do that in high school. You know, I mean, that's a very repeatable experiment. This is not, you know, but it's so, it challenges our, us, our fundamental conception of reality at such a deep level, you know, and then, so you, you have on the one hand, people who just ignore it, just say, okay, it's too weird. We, we just can't deal with it. And on the other hand, you have people who just, ex, you know, they, they extend that experimental data to reality in ways that are completely unjustifiable. Right. You, know, you can't just say because of this X, <laughs> that's, that's a, there's, there's a huge leap from the quantum level to the macro level that we live on. It's very hard to, but what, what I, what I do want to make the point of is quantum physics is well-established enough that we can reasonably doubt the validity of our current conceptions of time and space. Like it's it's actually most reasonable to assume they're wrong. Right. And, and, and even though they appear to be right at the level that we're interacting with them and the laws, the Newtonian laws of physics work great for things about our size, we now know that they're not the truth about reality. Mm-hmm. You know, that 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 they just don't, they don't work at the quantum level and that means they don't work you know not <laughs> you know in terms of a, a, a which means we have to we have to be willing to question our entire as you've been saying materialistic you know three dimensions of space and linear time view of reality not in terms of science as a useful art you know i mean because that's working great for a lot of things, you know, I, oh, yeah. I mean, nobody wants to, to get to jettison science, you know, mm-hmm. nobody wants to go back to a time before we understood everything we understand today. But in terms of an ontological understanding of the nature of reality, you know, the, when you want to ask big questions about who you are, and what does it mean to be and what's the purpose of, of life, you, you, we need to be willing to extend that exploration beyond the materialistic world of time and space. It's not just a, about what is it. So that means that when you ask the question, what am I? You can't just limit it to this, the thing that exists inside this body. Right. You, know, you, have to, you have to look at it in terms of the consciousness that's asking the question, what is that? Because that consciousness, at least according to the photoelectric effect actually has an effect just its observation has it doesn't have an effect because it controls the body and the body has an effect it has an effect just by looking and what does that mean about who you are and about what's possible for you and your reason for being yeah i mean because right now from my understanding of of the quantum what the quantum realm is that we're all made up of the same stuff. Protons, electrons, everything's made up basically of, of, you know, the same stuff. But the question is, what is organizing that stuff into Jeff, 
into mm -hmm. me, into this table, into this microphone. What is the organizing factor that puts us in these little packages? Because arguably we're just atoms and protons and electrons scattered throughout the universe. But for whatever reason, we're we're being organized in this in this way. That's what quantum quantum physics essentially tells us. Mm -hmm. So the question that they can't answer though is what is the organizing factor of all of this? Sure. In spirit, in spirit, I've heard that this is a illusion that we all agree upon. Hence, it has been created in that sense. This now we're getting into a little bit deeper in the spiritual side than the science side, but we are we are in, in an illusion that we have created, uh, and we all agree upon this illusion, right. and that's why we're here. What do you think of that idea? You know, personally, and you know, you get to a place where you can't really offer any evidence. <laughs> of course, yeah. But my experience resonates best with a view of reality in which I don't, I don't actually believe that reality is created from electrons and protons and particles. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm philosophically, I'm closer to being an idealist mm -hmm. and idealism has its own problems which we don't need to get into but fundamentally uh i i i you know if i look at my own experience i look i was a scientist i was an engineer for a long time i worked with scanning electron microscopes that could literally see molecules in in materials you only see them as kind of little bumps but you know it's very interesting see molecules this is kind of like what when you were saying you know you look at the big bang and you could see something what does it mean to see what is it like a scanning electron microscope what does that even mean you're you're sort of you know you're you're scanning something with a, a, a an energetic ray and then there's some kind of scatter coming off and then you're interpreting that that means you're seeing something who knows if you're seeing, you know, a lot of what you're seeing is just energy, right? Is no, there's no actual matter there. Um. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But anyway, if I look at my actual experience, uh, I was just thinking about this this morning, actually. <laughs> I was, I was writing a piece and I was, and I was, asking people what proof do you actually have that matter exists if you really think about it you know and you can say well i can touch this and i can feel it but all you know is that you you know you have the experience of moving your hand you have the experience of of bumping into something solid and you have the experience of some tactile sensation there's actually no matter in that equation it's all experience mm -hmm. And, and I don't know if you've ever had lucid dreams, you know, that was a, that was a big part of my journey, you know, and, and I was, I was, a, uh, I was an engineer at the time, and I used to be able to, with some regularity, wake up in my dreams, and I would do things like that. I, I remember being in a castle, of all places, and I was sitting on the wind on the stone windowsill, and I was running my finger across the rock ledge, and there was water in it, and I was going, wow. This feels exactly like a real castle would, but I know I'm in a dream. 
You know, mm-hmm. and I thought this is really this is really trippy because I know this castle doesn't exist. I know it's all in my head. And so when I was not in the dream and then I started looking at something, I thought, well, if I if I was dreaming, it would feel exactly like this. Mm-hmm. And this is the question that uh, this is the question that Descartes asked in, in his meditations. You know, he was just he decided he needed to like jettison all assumed knowledge and sit on his bed and question everything. Uh, and one of his questions was, how do I know this isn't a dream? Because if this was a dream, it would be exactly like this. You know, how do I know? Um, and and that's, I think reality is more like a dream than a physical place. And, mm-hmm. let, and let's face it, the idea that, that we live in some kind of universe of three dimensions of space, it doesn't totally add up because where does it go? You know? <sighs> It's just infinite. You know, this was a problem. Even even those guys, you know, the, in the Middle Ages, they knew this was a problem. They were like, you know, Newton and Descartes, and they were like, oh, three-dimensional space? Does that really make sense? It just goes <laughs> infinitely forever. I don't know. I, don't, I can't remember who did it, but eventually they decided to ask the Pope. Uh, because, of course, the Pope had the, had the direct line to all knowledge. So Obviously. They asked the Pope. And, and the Pope said, this is, you know, I may be getting the story slightly wrong, but it's more or less this. The Pope said, oh, yeah, uh, three dimensions of space are infinite. And the reason that's possible is because God is infinite and God can do anything. And that's what God did. Well, that makes sense. It's very logical. Right. So then you're like, okay, yeah. So they went, okay, let's run with that, <laughs> right? Because because we've got this whole science to develop, and we need we need this Cartesian background to base it on. So let's just run. The Pope said that he gave us his blessing. Everybody's going to let us go. Let's go with it. And I think Descartes at some point came up with some theory about the pituitary gland because nobody knew what that did. Um, mm-hmm. Oh no, that was where. This is another thing. He said, "There's just so many things that we don't understand." How can my mind move my hand? At what point does my thought of moving my hand actually touch some skin and make the skin move? Mm-hmm. This was a problem for Descartes. Eventually, he just said, oh, yeah, it happens in the pituitary gland. How do you know that? Well, because we have that gland. It looks like it's important. We don't know what it does. It must do that. Uh, you know, and this is like, and we've been running with this kind of, Cartesian Newtonian worldview for hundreds sure. of years. And quantum physics is giving us a chance to really question, as you said at the very beginning of this call, our materialistic assumption about the foundations of reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I love your I love what you said there about touching and like what proof actually is there that we have material something physical and then i just go back into a video game and in the video game a character mario is running to save a princess and as he's running he runs into a a block it's solid he stops he jumps over it there's a turtle he lands on the physical turtle the turtle bounces and so on all of that is programming. Right. There is no Mario. There is no block. 
And when they run into each other, it is a set of programs in the code that is a rule that when that Mario character hits that block, it's a solid thing that he has to overcome. Now we're going deep down the rabbit hole here for a second because everything I just so everything I just said really starts to make your head hurt because we then arguably, which is something that the the Vedas said 6,000 years ago, the Aborigine have been saying it for thousands of years, that this is a dream, this is an illusion, that this is not uh, the great illusion, Maya, that this isn't reality. And then you start getting into simulation theory, where now they're like, well, wait a minute, arguably the math makes sense that this could be a simulation, not as we know it, but it's something far beyond what we can even comprehend. And even Musk, uh, Elon Musk said, 500 years from now, if technology kept going at the rate that it's going, we'll be able to create a simulation that is absolutely indistinguishable from reality. There's just no question. And that's 500 years. Imagine if you had 10,000 years, 20,000 years. We're, we're a blip in time. Exactly. So you, it starts to make your head hurt, man. <laughs> no, it does in a good way. Yeah. I, I want to extend your video game uh, reference for a second. Um, mm-hmm. Because so here I am. I'm in my room. And mm-hmm. I, I look around. I have visual evidence that this room exists. You're in your room. You look around. You have visual evidence that your room exists. We assume that all the space between here in Philadelphia and there in Austin exists. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think reality is much more like a video game where only what you need is rendered as you need it because it takes up too much memory to to hold like the whole landscape of a video game. You just you just render a little bit of it and as you move, it's like the holodeck you know in star trek you so just, wherever, wherever your eyes turn it's there right it renders what you need and everything disappears where you're not looking because why hold all that extra information if you're not needing it uh mm-hmm. you know you can and what i do on retreat because you know so so this is where the whole quantum physics thing gets a little wonky right or or any of these ideas can get a little wonky so if i'm for instance saying Reality is rendered as we look at it. I don't know that, right? Sure. I have how do I know? I don't know. This is kind of like sure. it's just the same problem with if you don't know what reality is, how do you know if you're closer to it? But what I like to do when I I do things like re- lead retreats is I I like to give people these kinds of thought experiments, and I say, okay, imagine that reality is being rendered as you experience it. And, and nothing beyond what you experience actually exists. And go through an afternoon really holding yourself to that view of reality. And if you do, you'll realize it could be true. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and what I tell people is you don't have to prove that something's true. You just need to prove that it could be true. Because as soon as you prove that something alternative can be true, it simultaneously proves that what you currently believe could be false. Mm-hmm. And, and what, you, what you realize is if we, if we lived in a culture, for instance, that believed that reality was constantly being rendered as you encountered it, and we were told that from the time we were kids, 
Sure. And our scientists were saying that, and that's what you read about in books, and everybody was reinforcing it. That's what you would experience. You wouldn't have an experience that the, that the the room over there existed right now. You'd have the experience that it emerged in front of you as you walked into it. Your your literal sort of physiology, your nervous system would experience reality in this more emergent way rather than as a static background that's always there. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And then, you know, you'd have to run two experiments. You'd have like one culture that (laughs) developed that way and one culture that developed in this more static model. And then you look at them and go, okay, what's the differences? How does this one manifest? Does which one works better? You know, and and who knows? You know, we, we probably can't do that. But I ha- I love to creatively find these kinds of experiments to to work with, uh, you know, for myself and with people. I'll give you another example. When I look at something like there's a I have a statue over here. When I look at that statue, I'll have thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. Thoughts about what it looks like, or you know, it happens to be a a, a Guanyin statue. I have thoughts about Guanyin, I have thoughts about China, I have thoughts about Buddhism, I have thoughts about that particular statue and where I purchased it and why it's here. And I assume that I'm having those thoughts. So similarly, I'll, I will suggest to people for this afternoon, assume when you look at something and you have thoughts about it, that those thoughts are coming from the thing you're looking at, that it's communicating to you rather than you're thinking about it. And <laughs> and go, go through the whole afternoon looking at things and letting them speak to you. And, and again, you, you realize, well, if that's the way I had been raised to think, if that was the culture I lived in, that's how I would experience reality. I would experience that everything is alive and everything is communicating with me all the time. But because we live in a culture that sees ourselves as the only living, the only truly conscious thing. I mean, we're beginning to extend that a little bit into the animal world, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and some people even into the plant world slightly, but generally for a long time, we've considered ourselves to be unique uh, and that we are unique thinking things as opposed to most other things, which don't think, but this turns it around and suddenly you see, well, everything's thinking, everything's communicating all the time. The whole world is alive. And Again, you'd have to run that experiment in a culture or a society for long enough to see how does that society manifest? Do they end up with a different science, the same science, a better science, a worse science? Do they have the same political problems? I, you know, these are the things that I, this is to me, the big spiritual implication of quantum physics is it gives us reason to question everything about how we fundamentally think, not to jump into some new conclusion that's probably not supported by the evidence, but to open our minds. Because I think the most important thing that we need in the world is wide open minds. Uh, I I couldn't agree with you more, my friend. I I mean, one thing that I want to kind of dive in there to a little bit is that when, when we are, when we are, you said something really interesting that when you're if you have this belief from the moment you were born that that life is being rendered out as you believe, that was your belief system. 
isn't that really remarkable that we all are just walking around with that programming in our head? Whatever we were born into is our view of life. And that, and, and if you were born in a certain kind of religion, like you and I were both born in Catholicism, but both you and I said, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So we started to go off in our own direction to explore. We were curious. Right. We didn't buy into the programming. Not that there's anything wrong with that programming for other people. Everyone's got their path. But if you think about that for a second, that means that a lot of the biases, anger, frustration, resentments uh, that you might have in life are based on programming that you got when you were a kid, when you were a child. And if it's just programming in your head that you can reprogram yourself because I mean, I went to Catholic school with priests and nuns and the whole ball of wax. That's pretty hardcore programming. I right. mean, I look back at some of my first grade notebooks and I was just like, oh, this is complete brainwashing. Like I was being gaslit as I'm like, really, I'm like this. I mean, I was because you know nothing else as a child. You are, you know, nothing of the world. So whatever someone tells you of people of authority, you believe. Again, doesn't make it bad or, or good. Depends on what the programming is. But if we can, then that means we can reprogram ourselves to think differently, to open our minds and to be curious about things like quantum physics is doing for not only science, but really, if people really dig into it, to open our minds to all sorts of possibilities. Right. Absolutely. And, and you know, you, you mentioned that you and I both have, have moved, have left the faith. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I actually have come to really appreciate the Catholic faith myself. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. I'm, I'm probably more into it today than I was. I talk more about Jesus now than I ever did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because now I see it from a different perspective. Um, Absolutely. The reason, part of the reason you and I were able to make that shift is because we actually live in a modern culture. Right. Yeah, yes. If we lived in the Middle Ages, you there was no shift to make because there was no alternative. Right. There's no ideas were this and that's it. There, there literally was nothing else to see. You know, there's nothing else to see. There's really no, there's no chance. Only with the advent of modernism a few hundred years ago did people start. You know, there were no atheists. You know, uh, <laughs> a thousand Can you years. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> It, it wasn't real. It, it wasn't even like then they may not have been practicing for one reason or another. You know, I have no idea. But it was actually the worldview that we live in, um, or that people lived in. So, so we don't live in that. So, there's a few things I like to say about that. One is there's a personal conditioning that we encountered in our lifetime, but that conditioning, that programming to use your language, it exists in the culture around us. We're constantly being reprogrammed over and over again. Uh, so, so I like to use this example. Imagine you went outside one day and you saw uh, a, uh, an alien sitting in the top of a tree. And you were like, holy shit, there's an alien on the top of that tree. And then, you know, there were a lot of people. It was a, maybe it was a top of a building and it was a busy New York. It was like Times Square, you know. Mm -hmm. And you grab somebody and said, holy shit, look at that. And then they looked up and said, I don't see anything. What are you talking about? You'd be like, huh? You ask someone, you ask the next person, look at that. And they, they said, I don't see anything. And then you ask a few people, now you've created a little bit of a scene and people are stuck on what's wrong with this guy. You know, 
And I ask people, how long would it be before you started to doubt what you were seeing? And even more interesting, how long would it be before you stop seeing it altogether? Right. And, and that's the kind of, that's the way that we're constantly being programmed by the opinions of people around us. So you and I were raised Catholic in a very secular, very modern culture. So yes, we inevitably are, are, Catholic cultural background, you know, we came into contact with a modernist background and, you know, we, we made a leap. To me, I, I went whole hog into the modernist scientific paradigm. I studied physics. I was an engineer. And at some point I thought, oh, this is just another worldview. And this one is the one that's dominant right now. So this is the one where, you know, if I say, oh, I don't believe in Catholicism, nobody goes, really? Why? You know, people are like, oh, yeah, of course you don't. <laughs> but, right. You're absolutely, but a hundred years ago. But a hundred years ago, it would be different. Very absolutely. much so. But if I tell people I don't believe in matter, they're like, huh? Why? Is, is, is Matter isn't any more proven than God was. It's just what we all believe in. And, and you know, matter... The, the materialistic viewpoint is so pervasive in our society. It's not just that modernists believe in it or scientific people believe in it. Catholics believe in it. You know, everybody believes in it. And now that isn't that materialist worldview wasn't the original worldview of Catholicism, right? Mm-hmm. Oh God, Catholicism has changed so much. Enormously, right? It's it's modernized because in, in, in Catholicism, we were all children of God, you know, uh, mm. and people think meant that it wasn't just poetic. <laughs> they didn't mean we were born of God, but they, you know, they, they talked about uh, we're all thoughts in the mind of God, uh, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it was a very different worldview. So how do you this is this is my question philosophically how do we liberate ourselves from worldviews how do we uh be open-minded enough and free enough not to be trapped by any worldview you know we can move through them we can use them for what they're valuable for but without without getting adhered to them so that we're always available and ready for a shift well i have I have an answer that I believe is an answer to that question. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Is everything you're talking about is outside of us. But the truth lies within. Mm -hmm. Which is what the Eastern philosophies and, 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 and thoughts and ideas have been saying forever, which when you meditate, which I know you're a, heavy, you're a meditator as well as I am, you start to go inward for information. And when you, and it's hard for people who, who don't understand that to get, but there's certain ideas and knowings that come from looking within for the answers, which is the opposite of what this society says. It's everything's outside of us. You have to go read a thousand books, you got to go do this and got to go do that. But the East tells us, and those philo- the yogic philosophy specifically, is you go inward. And as you go deeper inward, information becomes apparent. Knowledge and truth becomes apparent. That's what the great yogis say. That's what the great masters have said. Jesus said it. Buddha said it. These are not 
not Alex saying this. This is something that it's been stated. So if you are constantly looking exteriorly for the answers, you're going to get a thousand different answers. Every time you read someone's book, no offense, you wrote a book, I wrote a book. It is our perspective, our worldview on what we wrote. So I know a lot of yogis are like, I don't read books anymore. Anything I find is experiential or it's internal to my own experience. So do you, do you find that a, fa- a, a satisfying answer? Yeah, it's satisfying. It's, yeah, it's, this is one of those answers where it's, it's true and tricky. <laughs> yes. Right? So, yes, I, very tricky. Absolutely. Because uh, what the, the, the truth you find inside is not the kind of, it's not even sort of the same domain of truth that you find on the outside, right? right. And it doesn't translate that well to the outside. It doesn't. <laughs> it's the, the translation is very tricky and most often goes wrong. Um, but yes, when because because when you go inside, you you start to see the truth about who you really are and about the nature of reality. Uh, not the nature of this reality, the one outside, right? But the deeper reality. That, because what 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 I find when I look inside is, you know, I am the awareness that is aware, and that reality is a manifestation of that awareness, and I am that. You know, that's that's what you know. And what does that mean? You know, that doesn't translate well usually to the outside world. You know, roaming around saying I am that. You know. <laughs> I am the witness that is aware. That doesn't really work. It's not exactly what it, it's not an accurate representation of what you feel inside mm-hmm. when you just land in that place where, okay, so one thing I don't, I don't know. We, we, I know we're running out of time, but I got to no, say. No, we have time. We got time. Okay. Um, have you read the book Flatland? I've uh, not. I've not read okay. the book. It's a very short book. Uh, half of it's sort of irrelevant, but the parts that are good are good. Uh, and this this relates to the to everything we've been talking about. So Flatland is is a story written in like the 1890s uh, by a school teacher, and it's it's about people who live in a world called Flatland. It's a two dimensional universe. They're circles, they're squares, but because they're a two dimensional universe, they can only see lines, right? Because anything above the flat world or below the flat world doesn't exist to them. They don't. They don't have that dimensionality. They just have the flatland dimensionality. Mm-hmm. And then a sphere from a higher dimension crosses through. Can you believe someone was writing this in like 1890? Are you kidding me? This is well, fascinating already. We think we're so smart, you know, but <laughs> just because we don't a read. School teacher, a school teacher in 1890s wrote exactly. this. Right, right. So, so the, the sphere comes. So, from the point of view of of this person in line in in Flatland, for, for for it begins. He just hears this voice coming from nowhere, and he's like, "Where the hell is this voice coming from?" And and they say, "Where are you?" And the voice is saying, "I'm right here," and he's saying, "What do you mean, right here? I, I'm right below you. What's below? <laughs> what does that mean?" And and he says, well, hold on. And then and then the sphere crosses through the plane of, of the flatland. But of course, all the flatland person sees is, is a line that just appears out of nowhere. And and the and he, he says, Oh my God, where did you come from? And he said, Well, I just I just came from right there, right next to you. But and the, the story goes on 
to give you a thousand different ways to experience what one more dimension is like. And, and lots of theorists at that time were writing about the fourth dimension. Uh, and if there is something like the fourth dimension, which I believe there is, you could imagine a couple of things. For instance, if I was in a fourth dimension, so that is, is a dimension that exists outside of these three. And I had two hands and I poked one finger up over here and one finger up over here. Those two fingers would appear simultaneously in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and if I, I could move one, like I could move one, one way and move the other one the same. Mm -hmm. And you think it was magic because those two things shouldn't be able to communicate through three dimensions that quickly. But from my point of view, it's completely normal because I'm connected to the whole thing. Uh, right. And this is how I, I think, just think our thinking needs to expand to include the fact that we live in a, in a, this is where I agree with, at least in principle, super string theory. We, we live in a reality that includes more dimensions than the normal ones that we, that we perceive. And the way higher dimensionality works is whatever dimensionality you're in. So let's say it's a, a, a cube, right? A cube is bounded by two dimensional squares, right? So there's, there's, there's six squares, you put them together and you get a cube. A cube is a three dimensional space is bounded by two dimensional squares. Mm -hmm. So the two dimensional squares are the edge of a, a third dimension. They don't exist in that dimension, but they, they bound it, which means our three dimensional world is the edge of the fourth dimension. So right. somewhere in a direction we can't possibly imagine, we are the edge of a whole other dimension of being. Uh, and we have no idea how that intersects with these three. Uh, and, and there's a lot of great thinking around it. You know, there is a, he's not alive anymore. He was a, uh, I don't remember his name, but he was a uh, scholar of religious studies. And he believed, because in the fourth dimension, you know, you would have access to all time in three dimensions at once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he believes that all of the history of spirituality and religions on earth is actually an encounter with a higher dimensional being that's been passing through our three dimensions. Uh, like the sphere. Right. Like, like, like the sphere, it just, and, and we experience that as happening across time. But of course, from the point of view of the higher dimensional being, it's all happening at once. Uh, it's really interesting because again, from my, my research in near death experiences, that is a concept that has been said multiple times that everything happens at once, that there is no time on the other side, which is hard for our, materialistic minds to kind of grasp that everything happens all at once, which then opens up a conversation because I always wondered psychics, how do they know the future? I've had experiences with, with psychics and mediums that they know things and ha things happen. I'm like, since I was a kid, I'm like, how is that possible? Uh, you know, it's not just broad strokes. Like you're going to meet a mysterious stranger kind of stuff. Mm -hmm very specific, provable, evidential 
kind of predictions. So then when I started when I started doing this show, I started really getting deep into it. It was like I asked from spiritual masters to the ears to channels, if everything's happening all at once, then is there free will? And they go, yes, it's that there is probability of what will happen. You and I are having this conversation. It's the probability of you bursting into flames out of nowhere or me turning into a you know a balloon probably not going to happen. But is it possible? Eh, maybe. <laughs> there's a probability in some universe that that could happen. Right. But so but there's probability on a direction where everything is going, but where it goes, it kind of wiggles. There's a wiggling of that free will. And sometimes it goes, makes a left turn or makes a right turn. And you're just, it's off track. And that happens a lot of times. But, and then that's where I came up with the idea. I think I did at least, I haven't heard it from anybody else that we're God's algorithm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Hmm. That we are... Because algorithms are programmed to do one thing, but then they start to kind of go in the direction that they want to kind of go in. But there's a probable way that the algorithm is going to react to its environment, correct? Yes, yes. So it's it's really interesting. So are we all just sitting in Plato's cave, essentially? I think kind of we are. (laughs) <laughs> we're all sitting in plato's cave for everybody who doesn't know the the famous uh allegory of the cave can you tell everybody what the allegory allegory of the cave was and how it it, it kind of under really so profoundly explains our reality well i was telling you about uh, the book written 100 years ago but this is thousands of years ago yeah yeah so so everyone's sitting in a cave there's a fire behind them and they're all chained, so they can only look forward. Uh, and all they see are their own shadows on the wall. And so they think those shadows are who they are. And they think those shadows are reality. Uh, and and then the, the idea was, you know, someone was, the, the ideal was to break your chains and turn and, and face the source uh, of, the, of the light. And I like to extend that cave analogy to say, not only do you want to see the, the fire burning behind you, you want to walk out of the cave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, else, what else is going on, you know? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant uh, metaphor for the fact that, and, and it, it relates to what we've been saying, you know, where I was saying earlier, how do you know matter exists? All you really have is experience. And, and so the, ex, the experience that we have as human beings is like the shadows on the cave wall. Mm-hmm. And we assume that those shadows, that the experience we're having, that it's real in some material way. We believe in, in the, the worldview that says, when I touch this table, I'm touching a something. Uh, and what we're, the opportunity we have is to unshackle ourselves from those assumptions and say, okay, like you said, so, the turning to see the fire in the cave is is what you described as the turning inward to find the light of awareness within. So you see, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's what's real. That's what's creating the whole appearance of reality is is that which is within me. Yeah, and and it's then you start then the hurt the head really starts to hurt 
And that now for everybody listening, I'm going to make your heads hurt even more with this next part of this conversation. Again, speaking to these near-death experiencers and spiritual masters that I've spoken to, that everything is happening all at once. And then I brought the question up, well, what about past lives? I go, well, past li- if you believe in reincarnation and you believe that we come back and for- come back again and again to experience and grow as a soul and evolve, they say, well, there is no past because past is something that we believe and, and, and we understand here in the third dimension as time and space. But in the fourth dimension, there is no time and space. So all lives are happening at the same time. And then you start going, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so all of these other past lives that you've had and all future lives that you have are all happening at the same time, but your awareness is on this life right now. But there's things that happen in this life where you can break karmic chains of older lifetimes by battling and confronting and overcoming those experiences. Now, where it then ripples back, doesn't even ripple. It just happens the other lifetime. You see, you see where this conversation could go. It could just, you just, it gets, it gets funky. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it, it just keeps reinforcing the point that, uh, there's just so much we don't know. Oh my God. It's real. So, so it starts to become more, it starts to feel more and more ludicrous to assume that you know what's real. Uh, and it feels safer to assume you don't because the chances that we've figured it all out already uh, are so slim, you know, but, but it's difficult for human beings to deal with the insecurity of not knowing. Uh, and and yet, I think if we can find a way to do that, to not be so sure we know what's real, mm. then we can open. And when as we open, more of what's real shows up. More of what's real is available. We may never get to the end. There may they may not be an end to get to. Right. There's just a constant state of evolution or growth or or, or yeah. It, it it starts to get to. This place of man, it just starts again, hurts the head to even start to contemplate these kinds of ideas. But then there's something like quantum tunneling and the ideas of parallel universes or the multiverse as mm-hmm. magically started to really become more popular. This idea of the multiverse, it's starting to hit the zeitgeist mm. big because movies are talking about it. Um, Comic books have been talking about the multiverses for probably 30, 40 years, 50 years or so. But now it's like you hear there's movie titles, there's TV shows, there's books. to The multiverse, the idea of the multiverse, that there's multiple versions of us. So then, so our parallel lives are this in this experience on this planet. But imagine if then you just turn and you just ripple it out into an infinite amount of universes and ideas what's your thoughts on that man that's awesome i mean i i besides the other things i write i write fiction and uh-huh. uh, right I created, I created a fictional imprint called transdimensional fiction which its point is to write books about transdimensional reality uh, uh-huh. 
And so in various ways, the fiction I write is always about, um, usually, you know, usually it's about a character who has no idea what's going on uh, and starts encountering multidimensional reality and then has to deal with it uh, in some form or another. Uh, but I started writing that fiction I, I don't know, four or five years ago. I think I've written six novels or something to date. Um, but I started writing fiction because I believed these things, but I, I was too afraid to say I believed it. So I thought I'll write fiction about it. And then, you know, eventually I'll find the courage to talk about it as as reality. And and I've caught up to my fiction now um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm not afraid to say that we live in a multidimensional reality and that we are all regularly encountering higher dimensions and higher dimensional beings. It's just that we sort of filter them out of our experience and or we explain them away in three dimensional terms. But like the alien on the building, like the alien on the building. Exactly. Do, do you know Jeffrey Kripal? The name sounds familiar, but I don't know. Okay, so Jeffrey Kripal is a professor over at Rice University. So mm -hmm. not, I guess not too, too far from you. So closer mm -hmm. to you than me, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, he writes a, a lot of amazing things uh, about higher dimension, higher dimensional realities and UFOs and, and really speaks to this idea about the limitations of our current worldview to accept mm -hmm. realities beyond it. But he wrote a book called Mutants and Mystics. Uh, and <laughs> what he's saying in that book, and, and higher dimensions of reality are part of that. But what he's saying in that book is in the modern era, because there is any there is no room for kind of our our weird spiritual experiences you know that, that we can't you know we don't live in the middle ages where you would just become a monk if you were having those experiences you know or there was a right. place for it. there's no place but what it, what he explores in this book and it's a it's a great book is that where a lot of this stuff ended up and i'm jumping off what you said earlier is in comic books that people were having these really powerful experiences of alternate realities and alternate possibilities. And, and when you have those, some people just need to express them. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, and so they were finding their way into Captain Marvel, Doctor Strange. Uh, Flash. Flash, Vision, you know, all of them. And when I read that, uh, I realized that when I was a kid, I loved Captain Marvel. Uh, now, in those days, this was this the, that, the Captain Marvel I loved in the 70s when I was a kid uh, has died at some point. So mm -hmm. he was a man. But his superpower was cosmic awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, and a, a big part of his journey was this spiritual path he went on because he was a great Cree warrior, um, yeah. but he met uh, some higher dimensional being who said, you know, you need to go beyond just warriorship. You know, you need to do battle with your inner demons and you need to discover the true power of being. And what he discovers in the end is cosmic consciousness, which in the comics means whenever he needs to know something, he can uh, release his awareness into the cosmos and he essentially gets that download of all jesus that's profound isn't that amazing i went back and, <laughs> and 
a I went back and bought it. Character. And I was like, wow, I was reading this when I was like seven. And I loved it. No wonder I ended up on a spiritual path. <laughs> so now I claim that Captain Marvel was my first spiritual teacher. I mean, I mean, I just, and you go if you go into and don't get me geek. I'll, I'll start geeking out with you, man. But I know, I can but, but I could I could start geeking. There's a Yoda behind me. You'll understand. But you start you start getting into uh, even in the concepts of the Marvel universe. And I won't go too far in this, guys. So please don't don't stop watching. But in the Marvel universe, there's there's our reality, and then there's something called the Watcher. Yeah. And the Watcher watches and doesn't interfere. He just watches what's happening. He's always kind of in the background. And there are some storylines where he does eventually have to kind of step into certain things because it's going to change the fabric of all the multiverse and stuff. But that concept that there is something higher than you watching all of this, watching us, watching the the events unfold however they might in a negative quote-unquote or a positive quote-unquote there is this watch or this idea of something bigger watching and there's something bigger than it It, as i think there is something big there are higher dimensional beings than the watcher as well so it's it just really starts to – it's really interesting, though. You know, I come from Hollywood, and I come from storytelling, and how stories in movies and in books and in comic books, these ideas are filtered there first. I mean, without H.G. Wells, I mean, the ideas that H.G. Wells dropped in Time Machine were revolutionary and spawned an entire generation of people interested in science or achieving to think about a concept of a time machine and going back in realities. It just, it all starts in fiction. It, it, it really does spawn in fiction. I think it comes through fiction first because it's more palatable that way. Right. And then it grows from there. But do you agree that throughout our existence as, hum- as humans in, in this reality, that ideas are presented at the time that they need to be presented when the when the basically when the when the student is ready the teacher will appear jesus brought in some ideas that still ripple to this day when he showed up buddha showed up and brought ideas because before them there was these ideas didn't exist in the way that they presented them their the energy that they presented them and then fast forward to where we are now where we're talking about quantum physics and spirituality in an open forum where before you and I would have been killed. <laughs> right. Well, that's this is the, the good the good news about the modern era is that generally, at least in, in most places, you don't get killed for... Generally. That's a big generally, by the way. Generally. Yeah, it's, it's generally. I mean, more so than in the past. <laughs> right. Now we just get, you know, flamed on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's the, there, there are repercussions for sure, but uh, sure. you know, at least we get to live generally. Yeah. We don't generally get a mistake, uh, right? Uh, but yeah, I I agree, and I think it's, uh, it's another reason I started writing fiction was because I thought, oh, it might be a better medium for expressing certain things. And there's an American philosopher named Richard Rorty who uh, I was very fond of. He's no longer alive, but he died about a decade ago. Uh, but he was an academic philosopher his whole life at Princeton, uh, a lot of time at Princeton anyway. And um, 
very prominent American philosopher. But at some point, he started to talk about, and I got very inspired. This was a big part of my inspiration for writing. He started talking about how he felt that literature was actually a better vehicle for new ideas than oh. philosophy. And, and part of his reasoning for that was he said, because the ideas are happening within a story which has characters in which you can not only convey the intellectual content of the idea, but you actually are able to demonstrate the emotional quality of it as well. It's, it's a much better vehicle for communicating. And when I read that, I thought, that's interesting. I want to try, I want to explore that. I want to explore how I can convey the ideas that I love in fiction in ways that might be easier uh, for people to absorb than in a nonfiction, you know, explanation of it. Well, how many, how many generations have been affected by Star Wars and the spiritual concepts that were laid in there? Absolutely. How many scientists were created after they watched The Matrix because of the philosophical and spiritual and quantum physics ideas that were laid in that amazing story in that amazing first film that it brought it to to the zeitgeist to humanity in a way that an academic paper couldn't Absolutely. like like you, the concept of like we're in the matrix it's not part of our lexicon it's part yeah. of how we speak like oh hey, there's a glitch in the matrix we're in the matrix this isn't the that's simulation theory that's also Maya. That's also the great dream, the illusion. But brought in, I mean, sure, there's some cool kung fu in it. Uh, <laughs> there's a really great action story in it. His ideas started to make people think about this stuff in a weird way. Now, on a lesser level, but still, all these movies about the multiverse, like the Marvel films and other things like that, they're quantum level and all this kind of stuff. They're seeds of these ideas and concepts that try to have a conversation about quantum physics with a kid, you really can't do that. But you let them watch Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum. It's a, it, obviously it's not quantum physics, but it begins the conversation to them to delve in deeper to these ideas and concepts. It's a very, stories are the most powerful medium. He's absolutely right. Stories have always been the most powerful medium to get ideas across. Absolutely, I, I completely agree. And again, it's tricky because stories can can accurately or, or, or helpfully, healthfully convey ideas and they can distort ideas. You know, there's all kinds of possibilities, but I am in complete agreement that uh, the story is a very powerful medium for communication. Now, Jeff, I could talk to you. It seems like I'm going to have to bring you back because we're going to talk for hours about this stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're going to have to do it again sometime. I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. Sure. What is your definition of living a fulfilled life? Uh, a fulfilled life to me uh, is a life where I am sharing what I love the most. Beautiful answer. Now, to piggyback on H.G. Wells, imagine you can get into a time machine and go back in time to speak to your younger self. What advice would you give him? I would. Um, the advice I would give him would be, don't worry too much. It's all going to work out. 
know that is the most common answer to that question. Is that true? It is one of the most common and very different flavors, but all the same concept. Like, it's going to be fine. Right. Because <laughs> you look back we're, and you think, oh. We're worried about everything. We're worried about getting an F on that test. We're worried about that girl who didn't want to go out with us. We're worried about that. Like, worried constantly. And now you look back and uh, it's going to be fine. <laughs> exactly. You can't predict what's going to happen anyway. So don't even bother worrying about it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, how do you define God? I define God as the the potential for all that is, the potential for all that is, and all that all that can be. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And finally, uh, what is the ultimate purpose of life? To become as complete an expression of that unique potential of God that you are. Beautifully stated, sir. Now, where can people find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing in the world? Uh, It's very easy. You just go to my website, which is jeffcarrera.com. And I'll make sure to put that in in the show notes, my friend. And do you have any parting messages for the audience? You know, I just, I do what I do. You know, I've been writing and teaching for 30 years now, and I just do it because I love it. And and I want more than anything else for people to love their life and love what they do, because I feel like that's how you become an expression of the divine, by loving your life, loving yourself, loving the people that you come in contact with, just passionately loving your time here. You know, we, we have, in, in this incarnation, we have a little amount of time And I just want to support people to love it. Jeff, it has been a pleasure and an honor speaking to you today. It has made my head hurt. I'm sure everyone listening's head is hurting a little bit, but this is one of these conversations that there are a lot of seeds that just got thrown up on onto the dirt and they will start the weeks from now. You'll start thinking about this conversation. I know I will. So I appreciate you and what you're doing in the world, my friend. Thank you again. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. I want to thank Jeff so much for coming on the show and sharing all of his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 292. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.